saw him and I closely watched him. I thought how he looked out of place. He came to the woman who sat there beside me. He had a strange look on his face. His big hands were calloused. He looked like a mountain for a minute. I thought I was dead. Ghoulish greetings to every single one of you. Thank you so much for stopping by and making Paranormal Prowlers podcast part of your day. Those amazing dunes that just graced your ears are, of course, courtesy of the amazing Bobby Mackey. And as always, I am your host, Tessa Morrow. You asked for it and you got it. This episode topic was suggested to me by Justin, my boyfriend, and a voiceover for the show. I love suggestions and recommendations. They challenge me and I learn a ton of neat things in the process of doing the research for these specific episodes. And this episode was a really fun one to do. So here we go. The man, dressed in the finest of clothing, walks briskly over the bridge. It's early morning and not many are out and about, but those that are stop in their tracks as they watch the short man walk by. His presence sends chills down their spines. He continues on, looking straight forward. He does not stop to say hello or shoot the breeze, for he is a man on a mission, and he must not be distracted and keep his patient waiting. Giovanni Battista Bugatti, a short man, a sharp dresser. His wife and him had a shop near their home in Borgo Sant'Angelo on the western side of Tiber River and rather close to the Vatican. In their shop, he painted umbrellas and sold them to locals and tourists and other souvenirs as well. He also happened to be the papal state's official executioner. Not only that, but the longest serving executioner as well. He starts as a very young man. His first execution takes place March 22nd, 1796, when he hangs and quarters Nicola Gentilucci, a man who murdered a priest and a coachman and robs two friars. The executioner Bugatti is only 17 years old. I guess if the 17-year-old could stomach a hanging and quartering of a human life, I guess he could pass with flying colors and is worthy enough to become the official executioner. His final execution before retiring will be the death of Gaetano Lucarelli on March 30, 1861, a few days past 65 years of service to the papal states, starting at 17 and retiring at 85. Upon retiring, he is given 30 scudi every single month. He dies four years later in 1869. Now, I'm unsure how Giovanni actually got the job as the executioner, especially at such a young age. Whatever the reason, it was a good one. It was a smart decision. He was professional. He was courteous. He took his job as the official executioner extremely seriously, and he showed respect to the condemned men and women, even at times offering them tobacco before their execution. He would talk with them as well. Bugatti was known as Mastro Tita. 
He considered his executions as justices and the condemned men and women as his patients. He traveled to all the papal states. Some of the places he traveled to for work was Valentano, the Piazza del Popolo, Subiaco, Yesi, Camerino, Ancona, Ferdmo, Peruga, Terragina, Ceccano, and Ponte Sant'Angelo. A Roman bridge built in 134. Many would be executed here. And in ancient towns, Poleno, Peterbo, and so many others. I mean, he was truly a traveling man. In his reign as executioner, Giovanni Battista Bugatti would conduct 514 executions. Now, from what I saw in his list of the executed, and I had to go one by one, 84 were hanged, 55 were hanged and quartered, one was hanged, quartered, and burnt, four were bludgeoned, one was bludgeoned with their throat being slit, one was bludgeoned, quartered, and their throat being slit, six were bludgeoned and quartered, four were beheaded and quartered, nine ultimate torment, 58 of the method is unknown as it was not specified, and a whopping 286 were beheaded, some with the axe and some with the friendly guillotine. He would perform 55 executions under the French rule. Prior to this, there were no executions that involved beheadings. While there were none before the French rule, there were several, as we see in the numbers, afterwards. 55 in French rule, and at least 236 additional, possibly more, as 58 were unsure of the method. Many of the people executed were murderers, several killing their own family members, spouses, co-workers, friends. Others included robbers, conspirators, forgers, attempted armed revolution, and I did see a couple minor offenses, like one when a man named Alessandro de Andrea was executed for stealing a watch, and another, Teodoro Cassiano, for stealing a pair of boots. So... I don't know if the punishment met the crime, but, you know, whatever. He was quite the detailed man and kept a journal with the names, their crimes, the method of execution, and yes, even the last words spoken from the condemned lips. His ritual for executions, he would leave early in the morning, dressed in his scarlet executioner coat. He would first stop at the church that he frequented, the Church of Santa Maria in Transpantonia, for confession. The Pope, in addition to this, would say a special prayer for the condemned. Actually, the day of the execution, they would have posts saying, please pray for this person as they are about to be executed. Before the soon-to-be-living challenged met their fate and headed to the execution site, their hands would be tied, their shirts would be cut to the shoulder, 
The monks would then lead them in a sacred procession down the street and to the site. Altar boys would be ringing their little bells. As the monks chanted, incense burning in their presence. At the site, the monks would continue to pray and present a crucifix, showing it to the condemned man or woman. For the beheadings, once the head was decapitated, Bugatti grabs it by the hair, picks the head up, and walks to each of the four corners of the scaffold, lifting it high for all to see. Now, most executioners back then, their identities would be kept secret, kept away from the public, but not Giovanni Battista Bugatti. Because of this and the type of job that this man had, he was actually forbidden to enter the central part of Rome, unless, of course, it was to execute somebody. It's believed that because of the families, so many families who lost someone to the executioner, and, you know, to their actions, of course, some may hold resentment and may seek out revenge. So he could not enter the main districts unless it was for work. And you better believe people noticed him when he was around. Once he crossed over that bridge, people knew that Bugatti was here to perform an execution. Somebody was going to die. Who? Today, for entertainment, you may go to the theater, watch a play, maybe watch the worst of the worst attempt karaoke. Been there, my ears still hurt, cause of death of the year. <laughs> but back then, executions were a major source of entertainment for the locals and visitors, families, famous and unknowns, and yes, even cardinals and popes. They would make a day out of it. Some even placing bets, like how hard the head would fall. How many wax with the axe does it take to decapitate the head? Last words and so much more. And some may find it gruesome, grim, and rather inappropriate that people would sometimes bring their own children to experience such an event taking place. But it was to teach their children that, hey, this could easily be you someday. Fathers would take their boys on their shoulders so they could get a rather good look. And for beheadings, when the head dropped to the ground or in the basket, the father would slap the back of the child's head. That can easily be you, my boy. Giuseppe Giuacano Belli, a famous poet, mentions in a sonnet of witnessing an execution when he was a child. Quote, the day they hanged Camardella, I had just confirmed. It seemed to me, now that my godfather took me to the market. I bought myself a top and a sweet roll. My father then took the buggy, but first he wanted to enjoy the hanging. He lifted me up high. See how beautiful the gallows. Suddenly the Mastro Tita struck them, and a kick in the rear. My father struck me. A slap on the right cheek. Take it, he said, and remember it well that this same fate is destined to a thousand others who are better than you. Well, this was before Bugatti was even born. Mind you, this incident when he saw this execution as a child, but he wrote it after Bugatti had become a well-known executioner, and he would mention Master Rotita, as we just saw, 
in several of his writings. Thanks to Bugatti and his extensive journaling, I can share with you some of the people that he had actually executed and the crimes that landed them a date with the official executioner of the Papal States. I went through all the executions, as you know, as I gave you the stats earlier on the methods, and jotted down a few to share. So here we go. Gustavo Paolo, Epaminonda Rambelli, and Ignazio Mancini were all officials in the public. They were customs officers who were liked, respected, and most importantly, trusted. They broke that trust, however, when they became vicious killers, murdering several friars, making these serial killers targets for the efficient executioner Bugatti. Four men, they were executed together, being hanged and quartered, paying the ultimate price for their part in the brutal murder of a Spanish princess. One got my attention as one of the condemned men shared my last name, Maro, or Maro, <laughs> Giocino Lucarelli, Luigi De Angeli, Lorenzo Robati, Giovanni Rocchi, and Antonio Maro. They murder a priest and are all hanged for this brutal crime. Their heads and arms were then cut off and displayed for all to see in Ponte Sant'Angelo. Sebastian Spadoni finds himself swinging from the old noose when he murders his own flesh and blood, his brother, and then proceeds to conceal the body in a well. That's brutal shit right there, man. I mean, I fought with my siblings in the past. Hell, we still fight sometimes. But murder? No. That's just, you're sick. Rosa Ruggeri was sick of the married life and asks three men to murder her husband. Someone's never heard of divorce. This request lands her, the conspirator, and mastermind, along with the other three people, to their executions. Child murderer Antonio Casagrande is beheaded and quartered after it's discovered that he had murdered at least three children. Gilbata Genovesi steals two ancient cups, which were possibly connected to royalty. For this crime, he is hanged, quartered, and set on fire. His head is then cut off and taken to the Arch of the Holy Spirit. Bernardino Bernardi is among the group that I found to be quite large to murder a priest. He is hanged and then his head and arms are cut off then displayed for all to see. I'm sure as a warning, if you pull the shit, there's no tolerance. This is what will happen to you. There are two people that died that the executioner had nothing to do with. And reading through this list, I narrowed it down to these two men as I knew one of them had been shot. Francesco Veri, who was shot, and Santi Moretti, who was hanged and quartered at Little Bridge by Bugatti's assistant. Around the one-year mark into being the executioner, he writes this in his journal. On March 28, 1797, I clubbed in Squarte, Valentano Marco Rossi, he had killed his uncle and cousin to take revenge of the unequal distribution of a common inheritance.
It would not only be locals who saw Mas Rotita hard at work, but some names well known to this day, such as Lord Byron and Charles Dickens, each giving detailed accounts to what they bore witness to on those fateful days. Detailed accounts that I want to share with you, giving us a front row seat, if you will, to some justice being served. Here's what Lord Byron shared. Quote, the day before I left Rome, I saw three robbers guillotined. The ceremony, including the masked priests, the half-naked executioners, the bandaged criminals, the black Christ and his banner, the scaffold, the solidary, the slow procession, the quick rattle and heavy fall of the axe, the splash of blood, and the ghastliness of the exposed heads is altogether more impressive than the vulgar and ungentlemanly dirty new drop and dog-like agony of infliction upon the sufferers of the English sentence, an example, hanging. The head was taken off before the eye could trace the blow, but from an attempt to draw back the head notwithstanding, it was held forward by the hair. The first head was cut off close to the ears, the other two were taken off more cleanly. It is better than the Oriental way, an example, the sword, and I should think then the acts of our ancestors. The pain seems little, and yet the effect to the spectator and the preparation to the criminal is very striking and chilling. The first turned me quite hot and thirsty and made me shake so that I could barely hold the opera glass. Don't you hate when that happens? <laughs> Close, but determined to see. As one should see everything once, with attention. The second and third, which shows how dreadfully soon things grow indifferent, I am ashamed to say, had no effect on me. As a horror, though, I would have saved them if I could. Now, while I am unsure of the identities of the three men Lord Byron witnessed being executed... I was able to track down the name of the condemned that Charles Dickens witnessed. And this would be not the only execution that Charles would see. But that's for another episode as it's a different location and probably not too far in the future. So there we go. The day was March 8th, 1845. In Rome, a man named Giovanni Vagnarelli is about to be executed for the robbery and the murder of a young lady named Anna Cotton Bavaris. She lost her life, and for that, he will lose his head. Dickens had taken some time off from writing so he could travel. During his travels while in Rome, he catches word from the locals that an execution is to take place later that day. So Charles, along with a couple of his friends, make their way to the execution site, and they will sit there and wait for hours, I mean several hours, so they can witness justice being served. Charles Dickens, like Lord Byron, gives an inside look to an execution that happened over 177 years ago. On one Saturday morning, the 8th of March, 1845, a man was beheaded here, nine or ten months before he had waylaid a Bavarian countess, traveling as a pilgrim to Rome. Alone and on foot, of course, and performing, it is said that act of piety for the fourth time. He saw her change a piece of gold at Viterbo, 
where he lived, followed her, bore her company on her journey for some 40 miles or more. On the treacherous pretext of protecting her, he attacks her, and the fulfillment of his unrelenting purpose on the Campania, within a very short distance of Rome, near to what is called, but what is not, the tomb of Nero, robbed her and beat her to death with her own pilgrim staff. He was newly married and gave some of her apparel to his wife, saying that he had just bought it at a fair. She, however, who had seen the pilgrim countess passing through their town, recognized some trifle as belonging to her. Her husband then told her what he had done. She, in confession, told a priest, and the man was taken within four days after the commission of the murder. There are no fixed times for the administration of justice or its execution in this unaccountable country, and he had been in prison ever since. On the Friday, as he was dining with the other prisoners, they came and told him he was to be beheaded next morning and took him away. It is very unusual to execute in Lent, but his crime being a very bad one, it was deemed advisable to make an example of him at that time, when great numbers of pilgrims were coming towards Rome from all parts for the Holy Week. I heard of this on the Friday evening and saw the bills up at the churches, calling on people to pray for the criminal soul, so I determined to go and see him executed. The beheading was appointed for fourteen and a half o'clock, Roman time, or a quarter before nine in the forenoon. I had two friends with me, and as we did not know but that the crowd might be very great, we were on spot by half past seven. The place of execution was near the church of San Giovanni del Cotto, in one of the impassable back streets without any footway of which a great part of Rome is composed, a street of rotten houses which do not seem to belong to anybody, and do not seem to have ever been inhabited, and certainly were never built on any plan or any particular purpose, and have no window sashes, and are a little like deserted breweries, and might be warehouses, but for having nothing in them, Opposite to one of these, a white house, the scaffold was built. An untidy, unpainted, uncouth, crazy-looking thing, of course, some seven feet high, perhaps with a tall gallows-shaped frame rising above it, in which was the knife, charged with a ponderous mass of iron, all ready to descend, and glittering brightly in the morning sun whenever it looked out now and then from behind a cloud. At the end of the street was an open space where there would be a dust heap and piles of broken crockery and mounds of vegetable refuse. But for such things being thrown anywhere and everywhere in Rome and favoring no particular sort of locality, we got into a kind of wash house belonging to a dwelling house on the spot and standing there in an old cart, and on a heap of cartwheels, piled against the wall, looked through a large grated window at the scaffold, and straight down the street beyond it, until in consequence of its turning of off abruptly to the left, 
Our perspective was brought to a sudden termination and had a corpulent officer in a cocked hat for its crowning feature. Nine o'clock struck and ten o'clock struck and nothing happened. All the bells of all the churches rang as usual. A little parliament of dogs assembled in the open space and chased each other in and out among the soldiers, fierce-looking Romans of the lowest class, in blue cloaks, russet cloaks, and rags uncloaked, came and went, and talked together. Women and children fluttered on the skirts of the scanty crowd. One large muddy spot was left quite bare, like a bald place on a man's head. A cigar merchant with an earthen pot of charcoal ashes in one hand went up and down, crying his wares. A pastry merchant divided his attention between the scaffold and its customers. Boys tried to climb up walls and tumble down again. Priests and monks elbowed passage for themselves among the people and stood on tiptoe for a sight of the knife, then went away. Artists and inconceivable hats of the Middle Ages and beards, thank heaven, of no age at all, flashed picturesque scowls about them from their stations in the throng. One gentleman, connected with the fine arts, I presume, went up and down in a pair of hessian boots with a red beard hanging down on his breast and his long and bright red hair, plaited into two tails, one on either side of his head which fell over his shoulders in front of him, very nearly to his weight, and were carefully entwined and braided. Eleven o'clock struck and still nothing happened. A rumor got about among the crowd that the criminal would not confess, in which case the priests would keep him until the Ave Maria sunset. For it is their merciful custom, never finally to turn the crucifix away from a man at that pass, as one refusing to be shriven. Suddenly there was a noise of trumpets. Attention! Was among the foot soldiers instantly. They were marched up to the scaffold and formed round it. The dragoons galloped to their nearer stations too. The guillotine became the center of a wood of bristling bayonets and shining sabers. The people closed round nearer on the flank of the soldiery. A long, straggling stream of men and boys, who had accompanied the procession from the prison, came pouring into the open space. The bald spot was scarcely distinguishable from the rest. The cigar and pastry merchants resigned all thoughts of business for the moment, and abandoning themselves wholly to pleasure, got good situations in the crowd. The corpulent officer, sword in hand, looked hard at a church close to him, which he could see but we, the crowd, could not. After a short delay, some monks were seen approaching to the scaffold from this church, and above their heads coming on slowly and gloomily, the effigy of Christ upon the cross, canopied with black. This was carried round the foot of the scaffold to the front and turned towards the criminal, that he might see it to the last. It was hardly in its place when he appeared on the platform, barefooted, his hands bound, and with the collar and neck of his shirt cut away, almost to the shoulder. A young man, six and twenty, vigorously made, and well-shaped, face pale, small dark mustache, and dark brown hair. He refused to confess, it seemed without first having his wife brought to see him, 
and they had sent an escort for her, which had occasioned the delay. He immediately kneeled down below the knife, his neck fitting into a hole made for the purpose and a cross plank was shut down by another plank above, exactly like the pillory. Immediately below him was a leathern bag, and into it his head rolled instantly. The executioner was holding it by the hair and walking with it round the scaffold, showing it to the people before one quite knew that the knife had fallen heavily and with a rattling sound. When it had traveled around the four sides of the scaffold, it was set upon a pole in front, a little patch of black and white for the long street to stare at and the flies to settle on. The eyes were turned upward as if he had avoided the sight of the leathern bag and looked to the crucifix. Every tinge and hue of life had left in that instant. It was dull, cold, livid, wax. The body also. There was a great deal of blood. When we left the window, we went close up to the scaffold. It was very dirty. One of the two men who were throwing water over it, turning to help the other lift the body into a shell, picked his way as through mire. A strange appearance was the apparent annihilation of the neck. The head was taken off so close that it seemed as if the knife had narrowly escaped crushing the jaw or shaving off the ear, and the body looked as if there was nothing left above the shoulder. Nobody cared, or was at all affected. There was no manifestation of disgust or pity or indignation or sorrow. My empty pockets were tried several times in the crowd immediately below the scaffold as the corpse was being put into its coffin. It was an ugly, filthy, careless, sickening spectacle, meaning nothing but butchery beyond the momentary interest to the one wretched actor. Yes, such a sight has one meaning and one warning. Let me not forget it. The spectators in the lottery stationed themselves at the favorable points for counting the gouts of blood that spurred out here or there and by that number. It is pretty sure to have a run upon it. The body was carted away in due time, the knife cleansed, the scaffold taken down, and all the hideous apparatus removed. The executioner, an outlaw ex officio, who dare not for his life cross the bridge of St. Angelo, but to do his work, retreated to his lair, and the show was over. So I don't know, thank goodness for Giovanni's wife, who was an observant, an honest woman, observant in the fact that, hey, I remember seeing this woman who was murdered wearing those exact clothes, and now you're gifting me with them? And she was honest. She confessed. I mean, he murdered this woman. And letting authorities know, she knew what her husband did was wrong and knew he had to be held accountable for this ever-so-brutal crime. Newlyweds, yes. Probably still in the honeymoon phase, yes. And now she's a widow. The papal law issued a payment of a mere three cents for every single execution to Bugatti to, quote, mark the vileness of his work, unquote. But he was also compensated for his travels and stays and a large pension afterwards. So he did okay as the executioner. Bugatti dedicated most of his life to serving the papal states 
and dies less than a year before the collapse of the Papal States. Today you can see up close we got these blood-stained uniform that he wore during his executions along with the tools that he used such as the noose, his axes, and the Papal guillotine at the Museum of Criminology at Via de Gonofalon. July 9, 1870, 152 years and two days ago, the final execution was performed in the Papal States. Many have claimed to see Bugatti's apparition roaming about, especially in the early mornings, which was the time he would make his way to the execution sites, specifically seen in the locations of Castel Sant'Angelo, Santa Maria in Cosme Aden, and Piazza del Popolo, wearing his ever-so-blood-stained execution uniform, at times offering tobacco to the living, like he did for so many years of his life to the condemned. So if you're out and about in the area and happen to see a man in red walking briskly past, Early in the morning, it may just be Giovanni Battista Bugatti making his way to his next execution. Did you enjoy this week's episode? Uh, yes, sir! Listen to the others. They are equally awesome. Haven't heard every single one yet? Really, there's no need to cry. Just head on over to any of those podcast platforms such as CastBox, Apple Podcast, Overcast, Google Podcast, Deezer, Podcast Addict, wherever you may roam. To listen to those other awesome podcasts, you'll probably find Paranormal Prowlers podcast lurking in the background. This week's special city shoutouts go to Gun Barrel City, Texas. Tallinn, Estonia, Atlantic Highlands, New Jersey, Aberdeen, Scotland, and Munns Park, Arizona. Thank you, everybody. It's greatly appreciated. Please come back by Monday to hear the newest episode, and we will see you next week. <laughs>